Hello everyone, good morning. So, weekend's been now. It's Tuesday, so you better have shaken off the Monday. Oh, I shouldn't have done on the weekend. We all have weekends where we overconsume. You have to accept that. Part of being a human in this age, this era, and it is more is so much more important. And I think the important part is really if you have social plans Fridays and Saturdays and stuff, is to make sure that Sunday is prep prepared. You've got fruits, water, meals ready in the fridge for Sunday. So Sunday doesn't become another kind of overconsumption day. Sunday becomes your base day. You might just want to get walking on Sunday. You just want to get out the house, get some fresh air, and that's that. When it comes to Monday. Your energy levels may still be depleted from weekends and stuff drinking. My, my levels certainly do. But you aren't coming from a three-day binge. You're coming from a... I've had a few drinks. I've gone out. Yes, I might have consumed more than I wanted. But at least Sunday wasn't that kind of rollover. It was a day of, nope, this is the day that we go back to base. It's prepared. I know I'm, I'm going to be behind over low energy for Sundays. And if you can do that, guys, the social plans, this type of social, struggling with the social t- uh, part of getting fitter and healthier becomes a lot, a lot easier, a lot easier. And then it's about, like, understanding what drinks you're consuming. Are you going from gin and tonics, which are, like, 90 calories, to espresso martinis, which are 300 calories? You know, you have three espresso martinis, 900 calories, you know, and then you've got gin and tonics, you can have three of them, and it's way less. So you just have to be a bit bit smarter with choices, if you can. But I think the main the main, the main, main skill to have is to let go of what's happened on the weekend. So it's Tuesday now, so you need to think, right, if I'm still holding on to the weekend, you're missing the point. You can only act today, right now. So that's important. So make sure you take that um, onwards today. I want to cover today, so I'm looking into... Um, I've been doing a systematic review with a researcher about moderation. I'm uh, looking at research about it. And is it different for men and women? Is it harder for women to control urges versus men? Um, it's quite interesting, actually. So when it comes to body image dis, um, dissatisfaction, uh, women are definitely impacted more than men. So the pressures held on women to conform to societal norms are de- uh, and defining beauty within limited moulds have negatively affected women more and conflicts and cause eating disorders. In the United States, women are approximately three times more vulnerable than men to psychiatric psychiatric eating disorders. In the book, The Image and Appearance of the Human Body, the Austrian neurologist Paul Schilder discusses that society has a great value for the beauty of the human body, and in many cases it might not coincide. The concept has been used in different fields of psychology and feminist studies. The human body, this is a quote, the human body is not a thing or substance given, but a continuous creation. The human body is an energy system which is never a complete structure, never static, is in perpetual inner self-construction and self-destruction we destroy in order to make it anew. Um, interesting, going on with the research, is it different for men and women to eat? And this is kind of a conclusion from one of the research. Women eat like a bird, men eat like a horse. <laughs> Let me explain what that means. Um, Investigators in human behavior and gender-driven eating habits have noticed that women are keen to eat a minimal amount of food such as a bird in the presence of a man, and on the contrary, men eat like a horse in the presence of a woman. (laughs) This is so true. Research at Cornell University conducted a study performed in an Italian restaurant offering open buffet. buffet. Is it buffet or buffet? Buffet, I think. Um, buffet service, such a posh word, sounds stupid. They observed that men who ate with women ate 93% more than their peers who ate only in the company of men. The lead study author, Kevin Kniffin, 
explains this by saying that men perhaps perhaps subconsciously want to prove that they are strong and healthy which could be an element of attraction for future meetings we find that while men disproportionately overeat in the company of women women feel like they overeat and feel rushed when eating with men even though there was no evidence that they actually ate more interesting it's a psychological battle guys i think it is all in the head you didn't even eat more than you normally do, but because someone else ate more, you felt like you ate more. Mad, okay? Um, there's another bit then about men use cigarettes, women use food in terms of stress, uh, coping with stress. Um, that's just because a lot of men smoke more than women anyway. But yeah, there is, there is kind of that um, fork. Um, men need to eat, women love to eat. Based on research, men usually eat to fulfill their hunger without focusing on the idea of gaining weight or consuming higher fat products like junk food. And that's because of their high metabolic rate and the ability to burn fat faster than women. On the contrary, women usually turn to low-calorie, healthy food in order to concentrate on the idea of losing weight because of their interest in their physical appearance, more so than men. Women have more emotional attachments to food due to media pressure. They attach guilt to carbs and saturated fats and often feel a responsibility to eat healthier in a way that men don't. Researchers show that women like chocolate to forbidden pleasure to those on those typical diets more than men. A study showed that a third of women dream about chocolate during the day. What's only 11%? You dream about chocolate. 33% of you. Come on. Some readers say this is because the chocolate releases dopamine. Yeah. This is an interesting thing that came from a research. Um, when a man can't sleep, the first thing he does is get up. Whilst when women feel it, they start to feel they didn't eat enough. So women always keep a strategic stockpile and sure it contains chocolate. Not sure if this is universally true, but on this research is showing now. Researchers have proven a relationship between sleeping disorders and binge eating in women due to brain chemical changes. Sleep-related eating disorder, SRED, is characterized by irregular and involuntary eating patterns during the main sleep period. And though it occurs to both men and women, the percentage of women affected by this disorder is greater. In the same context, nocturnal eating syndrome, NES, is characterized by frequent bouts of eating after dinner or after waking up. Both conditions strongly affect eating patterns in women and have a pivotal role in the prevalence of obesity and the problems resulting from it. That's interesting, right? Think that's interesting? Does any of that apply to you? Again, this is where we become our own scientist. Where are we struggling? Where are we struggling with our eating? Is it weekends? Is that really the crux of our problems? Are you all good Monday to Thursday? Do you feel awesome and then weekends come, you drink too much, you eat too much, you feel terrible on Sunday and you carry on that behavior to Sunday? Or is it day-to-day problem? Is it a day-to-day struggle? You know, are you wanting to consume more than you need day-to-day? Is it the night time? You need to find that. Um, also then looking at uh, reading a book about emotions. And I think there's a few interesting points from that I'll uh, share now as well. So I'm trying to trying to work out what I'm looking at right now um, for content and maybe to do the systematic review, get it published, we'll see, is moderation, emotional eating, boredom eating. It's not very, it's, none of this is logic, logically based. We know logically we shouldn't really be just eating because we're bored or eating because we're sad because we're going to feel worse after it. We can connect those dots what is happening in the brain when we do make that realization but still go ahead anyway is it that there is a part of our brain that all will thinks is it is it true that like the stoics would say is that 
you only do something that you feel is good for you. Even if you know that it's bad in quotes long term, like, oh, I shouldn't eat this chocolate now because long term I might gain weight. But right now it's going to make me feel good. That's why I want to eat it. So is it that we do everything and there's a smallness, small, there's always a bit of goodness into it. That's why we do it. Right? That makes sense. You can't assent to something that's not going to be good for you. Everyone thinks what they're doing is right or good to themselves. So you can say that people even self-harming, and reading that book about uh, trauma, people are doing self-harm, you may think that can't be good for them, but it is good in their heads because they're release, it's, it's taking away the psychological pain for a bit and it's they think they're releasing it and they're cutting themselves and it's distracting them. So it is good for them to do that. Well, they say that that's why they're doing it. So maybe it's that. Maybe we see that there's a goodness. There's always something good in eating or overeating or binge eating because it makes us feel better in that moment. So how do we overcome that is is a big question. And there's a, there is research on this which shows that when you do go through a binge eating episode, the next time it comes along is not really to stop it, it's to actually go through it and start live commentating on how you feel whilst you're eating. So you'll start eating the first bite, you go, oh, this is lush, this is lovely, I like it. You could journal, by the way, doing this. Really like uh, the second chocolate bar goes in, you're like, yeah, it's nice, feeling a bit full now. And you start getting to the point where you're like, oh my God, my stomach, I'm so full, but I could have another bite. 10 minutes later, you're like, I'm so full, but I got a craving for another donut. And you just eat another one, you start saying, yeah, I feel terrible now, energy's crashing. And then eventually, you are really replacing your thought process about the binge eating with the reality of what actually happens because the reality is after you go past a certain point it is painful to keep going you feel full you feel overfull you feel lethargic you feel terrible by yourself you know there's all these negative things but we go back the next week and have another binge eating episode and we f- we tend to forget the bad stuff and we always focus on the good stuff and you we do this and a lot of people do this in relationships to name so if you think of relationships people will always think like even though they do 99% stuff bad, they'll always go, oh yeah, but they, that one thing they did was good. When they did that one thing, that was brilliant. And they kind of ignore the bad red flags. We ignore red flags, basically. This is what we do. And now it's, it's the ability to not ignore them, probably. That's the thing we need to look out for. So in this values book, um, values, emotions, it says the value of basic emotion is to easy. It, it, it is easy to see how some basic emotions, such as fear and anger, helped our ancestors survive. The capacity for fear is clearly useful in a world where hungry predators pose a serious threat. Fear allows animals to react very swiftly to any possible sign of danger, pumping their bodies full of hormones that facilitate a fast escape and flooding their minds with one thought: flee. Anger is similar, except that it prepares the organism for a fight rather than for flight. So when you think about your psychological ability to uh, think there's a threat that's completely made up, fabricated, you can become fearful of the weighing skills. You can become fearful of a weekend. You can become fearful of you know, going to the gym after a while. And you can actually release all of these hormones that are released back in the day only for when there was genuine life-threatening um, scenarios. And if that happens... And you're doing this all the time. You're putting on this all. You're putting on this like 100% mode, survival mode, and that really does wear the body down. It's very damaging over long term to release this, the stress response, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's important to realise that we should feel fear, because it's 
one of the most critical things that's kept us alive over the years. So you need to should have been able, we, we want to be able to feel these emotions. So if you feel it all the time, it's not that it's a bad thing right now. It's like, right, it's very sensitive. How can I make sure that I only use it when absolutely necessary? That's the main thing to think about. So when it talks then in this book about joy and distress, which are other emotions, they are more complicated. They probably evolved to act as motivators, leading us to pursue or avoid certain courses of action. We tend to feel joy when we do things that in the Stone Age would have helped us pass on our genes. The reason why having sex, meeting old friends and receiving gifts makes us joyful is that all these things were conductive to the reproductive success of our ancestors. Conversely, the reason why the death of a friend or a loss of an important possession are so distressing is that these things were bad for the reproductive success of our ancestors. This does not mean that our ancestors made the connection in their minds between these emotions and genetic success. Natural selection did not design our minds to think directly about the best to pass on our genes. Instead, it gave us the capacity to feel joy and then made the experience of joy contingent on doing the things that helped our genes get to the next generation. Right, so that's the reasons why joy and distress developed. The same phenomenon occurs in other social species, including many primates. In one experiment, Marquez reared in a laboratory where Rhesus um, Marquez reared in a laboratory were unafraid of snakes when they were first saw them. What is that? People, okay, people were unafraid of snakes when they first saw them. However, after watching a film of another monkey reacting, okay, so Rhesus Marquez must be a monkey. <laughs> I don't know. However, after watching a film of another monkey reacting to a snake with fear, they too began to show the fear response to snakes. There are limits, however, to this kind of learning from experience. When shown films of other monkeys being frightened by a flower or a rabbit, the laboratory reared mac, 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 That's a, monkeys. Reared monkeys did not develop fears of such harmful things. Emotional learning is a combination of environment inputs and an innate disposition to learn some things rather than others. That's very interesting because we know the fear is learned, but there's definitely things in the back of the brain that must know, oh yeah, we've been these boys have been after us for millennia. <laughs> like they, we'd be scared of these boys. Um, but it is interesting how you can learn stuff, and this is why when you hang around with certain people, it's important. A lot of people, and I've mentioned this study before, mothers who are always dieting, always talking about how fat they are, how much weight they're going to lose, and this and that, around their daughters and kids. By the age of eight, their daughters would have already been wanting to lose weight. Their daughters would have learned the fear of fat learn the fear of gaining weight, learning the fear of eating the wrong foods in quotes. And this is quickly learned. Think how quick a, a child learns language. So if you can pick up, if a child can pick up three or four languages, if you really put them in those environments by the age of eight or nine, they're definitely gonna pick up what you're fearful of. And they're gonna develop this over their teenagers and that's gonna cause lifelong problems. And a lot of you have probably gone through this where you have been holding, you are, you are holding on to the same problems that you've developed as a child because the generation before were always on about trying to lose weight in these crazy ways, always stressing about it, stressing about money, all this different type of stuff, and then you've learned it. And it's hard to unlearn it, but you have to see what you're fearful of isn't based on actual reality. It's based on just like propaganda, essentially, through these magazines and stuff over the years, what the industries want you to think and feel. Do any of us actually dive into these things? You know, have you ever thought about why you're so scared of the scale weight? 
You know, why are you so scared of a number on the scale? What is that number saying to you? Who has put that number in your head as bad? Who has made you scared to not be... A lot, you know, back in the day, it was like size zero. Remember Victoria Beckham, all that, she's size zero. And it's like all this nonsense about being size zero. So then size eight all of a sudden was fat to some people. So size eight wasn't even enough. And then all of a sudden size 12. And you, these sizes that are normal, in a sense, can we use the word normal? I don't know, like these sizes that there's people of different sizes over all of history, man. But all of a sudden now, you've got size zero and size four, which is where the ideal is, when actually the norm is way beyond that. And the same with men, on the opposite. The normal man now has to have big arms, muscular physiques. You know, a lot of people are attracted to men. You know, ask any girl, well, what do you like in a man? It's like, oh, I like a man with big arms, you know, all this type of stuff. And most men don't have that typical gym physique that they see all online, which is hard to obtain. So you have these men now who are, who are just genuinely just normal physiques, strong, naturally strong, they don't look massive compared to these athletes, but they're well built. But now they feel inadequate too. But you have to learn about where these poles are coming from. Otherwise, you're trapped in them and you don't know where the source is. And you never truly understand it. And I think understanding is the first part. Uh, first part. Um, another bit about you. I won't go into a big time, but it says about how crying is um, is an interesting one. The research has looked at. Uh, crying makes you feel good. They say that it releases, it releases stress hormones from the body. So if you are feeling stress and stuff, have a good cry. Then they said, actually, maybe it's not. It's maybe if you cry, other people feel sorry for you and then they call for your support. But then it goes on to say that that theory is problematic because why does crying and you don't feel better? Fear. And, uh, and the thing is, fear is probably one of the first emotions ever evolved. It is likely to have been present in the first vertebrates, which appeared some 500 million years ago. All animals descended from these early vertebrates, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals have inherited the capacity for fear. Humans are far from unique in this respect. Think how nuts that is. We've learned these emotions we feel, all of us feel them, been around 500 million years. And they're obviously very useful. But they're useful in their right place. Everything's got its right place. Feeling sad, fine. It's got its right place. Anxiety's got its right place too. We need anxiety. We need fear. We need, in a sense, sometimes we need anger. If you're in a life or death situation and you you fear, but you need anger really to fight back or whatever. You, anger turns you into a superhuman sometimes in terms of the adrenaline rush and how you feel. You know, it can make you... There's a lot of stories of people angry and escaping all sorts of situations. So these emotions that we have that we want to manage are very useful, they're very useful indicators. The problem with them is that they can act so fast they bypass the cognitive part of the brain, they bypass your th thought process basically. So we have to learn to have, so the Stoics realized this as well. They called them proto-impressions, proto-emotions, where you had the reaction and then you had, they focused on the second layer. So they focused on, right, I need, this, I need the gap between the stimulus of that emotion and the response of me then deciding what to do. I need that gap to be as big as possible for me to actually act on this rationally. And they believed that God or the Zeus or the, the, the universe had given humans the unique capacity for reason, for rational thinking. No other animal can do that. So when it comes to managing your emotions, the, lip, the base layer, and you're, most of you are saying you're struggling with boredom eating, emotional eating, um, and dealing with weekends coming back, you have to realize that a lot of these 
feelings and emotions are automatically kind of going off. And it's really up for us to ensure that our rational brain has a solid, calm uh, base to work from. If you are in a frenzy, stressed, panicking, you can't think straight. You have to do this work before the stress comes. So this is why it's important to read up about Stoicism, um, Buddhism even, learn about the brain, learn about anxiety, all this type of stuff. So when the time comes, the rational part of your brain understands. And then in the understanding, diminishes the impact. But if you don't understand and you're clueless about it, you don't know, and something comes, stresses you out, you frenzy about it straight away, it's done. You can't come. You can't come back down from a from a panic, from a frenzy in seconds. You have you have turned the put on the red button. You have put on the red button. It's all panic stations. So for today, be a bit more passive in a sense. Anything that's happening, be very passive about it. So, someone says something to you, practice being passive about. Okay, someone said something, sit with it, reply as opposed to like already going out there. Um, weighing skills is a very good place to start practicing this if you've got I'm not saying some of you might just not want to do it go on the scales but for many of you go on the scale sometimes use it as a practice to look at the number see the response in the mind it starts going oh my god all of all the automatic stuff and sit with it just stand there and look at the number it's just a number look at it the story's going off just look at the number that's the number fact okay what am I going to do about that number today my goal is fat loss. I know exactly what to do. And you get to work. You do the work and results will come as a byproduct. You know, that's how we should be going about stuff. This very rational looking path. If you don't do the practice of doing that, every time you get on the, on the, on the, on the weighing scale, you'll panic. And then when you panic, stress response goes off. Then you just want to eat for comfort. And it's, you've already started the day off in a frenzy. And it's no wonder it's hard to stay control, under control with a cool head. So my theme for 2023 is like water, cool head, water, cool head, going with the flow but having a cool head. Things are going to come, disasters are going to come, no doubt. But having the training beforehand so when it does come, the, the the damage in a sense is very limited to what it would have been, being a headless chicken about it all. So hopefully this voice note was useful. I think uh, once I look more into this and any any cool stuff I'll, I'll share about, but um, it all comes down to behaving or acting now so if you haven't gone for your walk today make sure you do go for a walk especially in the middle of the day there's a lot of research now walking in daylight obviously vitamin d is important but like for circadian rhythm between 11 and 2 p.m just having that daylight going for a walk big impact on your day and it's one of the easiest things you can do as long as you can do it with your work at lunchtime. And if you can't do it with your work at lunchtime, but you ref- you decide not to because you've got a workload, that's then on you because you have to go and resolve that. Employers are probably more, uh, what's the word? More, what's the word? Looking for. They're probably not as harsh as they were back in the day in terms of times and stuff. Maybe they're getting better because they realise it. So yeah, that's your task today. If there is one task to do and you haven't begun your steps in, I just want you to get your steps in the middle of the day. That's it. You don't have to track. But if you are feeling like you're off the wagon completely and there's nothing you can do, you either do for the walk at midday today, you either just track your breakfast today, or if you really want to get into a workout, you just do a 10-minute workout. Go and do a workout, so I'm going to do it for 10 minutes. That's it. And let me know how you get on. And I shall speak to you tomorrow.